Hello everyone, Simon Jacobson here, <clears throat> and we're going to be speaking about an interesting title, The Good Thing About Feeling Inferior. Now you may wonder, how could you say it's a good thing to feel inferior? Inferiority, a sense of low confidence, low self-esteem, insecurity, is the root of so many of human challenges and human difficulties. So how can we find something positive in feeling inferior? And yet, as we shall see, a topic like this, even though ostensibly may seem so simple, actually touches on some of the most important core issues that makes us tick to understand ourselves, to understand not just ourselves, to understand the very self who we are. That self, that consciousness that we each have that defines our personal identities. So when you think of it, we all know that on one hand, every person needs to have a certain element of self-value. Sometimes that can be identified with the ego. The ego is... You respect yourself. You have a certain element of pride, of honor. And when someone so-called insults you or abuses you or violates you in some way, it's an affront, a violation of your selfhood, of your dignity. When you're validated and nurtured, it's an affirmation of that dignity. On the other hand, we also know the ego and that sense of self taken to the extreme, or even not, even not to the extreme, can also be the root of many problems. Arrogance, great greed, narcissism, selfishness, where you feel you are the most important one, you're the center of the universe, and it's all about me, 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 and everyone else is there to serve you in some way. And even if you can mask it, Nevertheless, what's the driving force is my survival. Therefore, we need to balance and counter that with an element of humility and selflessness. So which one is it? And how do you find balance? On one hand, you need a sense of self. On the other hand, the self can get you into trouble. So how do you find a balance of a healthy ego, a healthy self, at the same time, one that does not hurt and trample on others and respects others and their self as well. This is something that has plagued thinkers, philosophers, psychologists from the beginning of time. Some go with the argument, at the end of the day, it's about the self. But since we need red lights, green lights, just to have a social, peaceful interaction, some type of peace... We write rules, but the rules are all superimposed over that drive for the self. Richard Dawkins' selfish gene, that the cardinal rule of existence is survival of the fittest. Survival, and thus survival of the fittest. And therefore, we all compete over the same resources, and hence the battles, the wars, the hostilities, the injustices of man to man, in order that I prevail over you. But, 
in a more humane society, we need to write some rules, which are not natural. The natural is the selfish. So we write, as I said, red lights, green lights. There's nothing inherent about a red light and a green light. It's just that not everybody can drive in the same direction, in different directions at the same time. So we need to have rules. When it's red light going one way, it's green for the other. And hence the rules of society. Which are meant to keep the fabric of coexistence going. And it has its challenges, because at all times... And that's why you have legal systems where people are litigating and fighting over rights. And it's about it's the self and the selfishness and greed that dominates. But still, we hope that these laws keep some, at least a bit in check. So essentially, the self then is a necessary evil, so to speak. And as man has evolved, we've learned to figure out ways to somewhat check it through mutual agreement to certain mediation or certain legal systems or other forms of give and take and negotiation, reach compromises and finding a middle ground or something that everybody can live with. with. Albeit with all the challenges to that type of system, so it's not a perfect system, but it's the best we have. This is the most prevalent argument out there without going into all the, the details. But it's all predicated on the fact that a human being is a selfish creature. And his or her main motivation is preservation, is survival. And everything else orbits around that. But is that the only theory that exists? And is it even the correct analysis of the human condition? So, of course, we'll be speaking about an alternative version, which is very, very different and therefore also has different type of conclusions. And that version is based on the biblical, and I'll do it through the biblical, through the lens of the Kabbalistic, the mystical, called psycho-spiritual perspective on the human being, that we are inherently transcendent creatures. Not selfish creatures, transcendent creatures. Yet transcendent creatures that live in a world that there needs to be survival and preservation. But the core drive of the human being is transcendence. And transcendence is not necessarily competitive. Because transcendence means you're going out of the self. Transcending yourself for some higher purpose. And therefore you can cooperate with others, not just cooperate. You may even actually give away of yourself because that's part of your transcending in the name of love. So it's not just coexistence to create laws where the selves don't completely annihilate each other, but it's actually a part and parcel of transcendence is allowing space and respecting the space of another. To use an example I often use, take the example of musical notes. I know it's not, they're not a human example, because musical notes have no free will. But hypothetically, each note has its own personality, its own self. For the music to play, and be beautiful, each note has to fit in to a larger composition. Each one knowing when it has to play, and leaving room and yielding when the next one enters. And when that works perfectly, that's called harmony. And not only don't they compete, they complement each other in the diversity. It's harmony within diversity. In the human being, we find this in our a healthy organism. So many different systems different structures, 
going further down and breaking down into even more limbs and organs and parts to the point of, to the basic building blocks, the DNA, the, cell, the cellular structure and the DNA of a human being. And with all the millions and trillions of cells in a healthy organism, they all work and complement each other. And we see this on a daily basis. When you walk down the street and thank God you're a healthy person, your feet, the eye and, and the eye and hand coordination, the feet walking and everything being harmonious, everything fitting in the right way. You take a piece of food in your mouth, the digestive process, everything coming into play when necessary, not before, not late after. And it's like an assembly line of a mag- of, of, of a, a magnitude that's hard to even fathom how it works in such an organized way. Yet it does. And it creates one healthy organism. So based on that, the fact that this self is not a contradiction to other selves, because they're all part of one larger unit. Now physics, modern physics especially, and science in general, has come to that conclusion when it comes to the, the core building blocks of existence, the atoms and subatomic particles, and how they all work and relate to each other and even sense each other. And that's what creates the glue that keeps existence an existence, and an organized existence, and a coordinated one, and a synchronous, a synchroni- a, 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 one in sync with each other. Harmony. Again, harmony within diversity. So based on that approach, it's not about the self being checked. It's actually the self is part of a larger picture, and when it recognizes that, it is healthier, and the entire picture is healthier. The entire organism is healthier. And that type of life is actually driven not by selfishness, but by egolessness. Because it's not about you. It's about the bigger cause. And then you play a role, an indispensable role in that larger cause. Now, if we all felt that way, all humans felt that way, like those musical notes, we would have no war and no strife and no inhumanity and injustices because there would be no need. Not only that, we would recognize... That would be as insane, as ludicrous as one arm hitting another arm because the other part is part of you and, and you need it and it needs you to survive and to thrive. And yet we can have the myopic perspective that we're alone and we're competing with others. How is that possible? Because it depends what you're looking at. If you're looking at immediate gain and your immediate pleasure, and what you feel is power and control, yes, then it appears, that, it appears that you are different and therefore competing with others for resources. But if you see the bigger picture, and you step back, then you really see that we're all, even our diversity is part of a larger whole, a larger unit, it's a very different perspective. Now, I'm not here to, make deba- to debate the issue and argue it. I'm trying to make the case. Obviously, it's pretty clear where I lean toward that doesn't mean we all can't be selfish at times, but we recognize that that's not the optimal, and it's not the desired standard that we should be living up to, and it's not even the desired truth. It's based on whatever reason you want to explain, and I'll try to get into it a little later, on a blindness that doesn't allow us to see the whole picture. So then we just see bits and pieces, instead of it seeing a larger narrative, a larger film, even in our own lives, we can have conflicts from day to day because we don't see the flowing narrative. So we see things as 
this contradicts that. Instead of looking for the strings that connect and attach the commonalities that create the harmony that I'm describing. But let's take this even further. And here, I want to talk about God. You'll see why in a moment. Not because I want to make a case for religion, but I think it's an important and critical component. You know, this word God, as I discussed many times, is a very mysterious word, full of stereotypes. What for one person is God, the other person completely would reject. The classic story of Rav Yitzhak Baditchev, the great Hasidic 18th century master, <clears throat> once told a self-proclaimed atheist that God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Because it's words. What, we define what it is before we disagree or agree. So most people, you give them a quick, what's God? There's the prerequisite supreme being, the first cause, some higher force. We have to tremble before all the stereotypes associated, many of them negative, with God. Punitive, angry, wrath, punishment, fear, neurosis, guilt. The list goes on. That's most people's knee-jerk reaction. So what is the the point of God in the first place? Like many people ask, very skeptically and very correctly, what do I need to subject myself to some higher power? I mean, we've lived a history where we see subjecting ourselves to the authority of another has only caused problems. Because if we, whether it's, you know, there were benevolent despots, but tyrants who have total absolute control leads to absolute corruption. So subjecting ourselves to one authority blindly seems antithetical to true freedom and especially to the true sense of self. And God is puts in, is fit, fits right into that same category. Okay, so it's not a human God. But why am I subjecting myself? Why not just follow my heart? I'm an individual. I'm an adult. I make decisions what I think is good for me. So we know the counter-argument that we're all subjective human beings. We have our biases and prejudices. So you don't always make those decisions. But still, is it better to subject ourselves to another higher authority? However... Let's take this a little more. Let's, 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 drive, let's uh, carry this further to the logical conclusion. It really comes down to this. Who determines what you're going to do with your life? You or some higher authority? And most of us would answer, I'd rather me decide than the higher authority because how do I know that authority has it right? How do I know the people that taught me about that authority are not corrupting or distorting the message? And the list goes on. We all know the arguments. So what are we left with? No choice. I have no one else to turn to but myself. The real argument, the real point of God is to say that if everything begins and ends with the self, with you, if everything begins and ends with the self, then... You, you're, as they say, you're born by it and you die by it. You're born by this, you, you win by the sword and you lose by the sword. You'll be brought down by the sword. Because the self, even in a healthy situation, is ultimately, in some way, a contradiction to other selves. That idea that there's a bigger picture comes from the idea that there's something beyond the individual self. 
So without getting into the religious arguments or the theological ones, let's just put it in very stark terms. You either follow and worship yourself or you, worship, or you follow and worship something greater than yourself. Now, if that God is just a man-made creation of people who want control and power, and therefore just simply invoke God's name because they can control you with that, saying God does not want what you're doing, God wants you to honor me, and all the ways this was used and abused by different so-called leaders throughout history, then that's not a God worth talking about. Because that's not a God, that's a God that certain men, certain people have created in order to, keep, to, to gain control and to maintain control. But if we were to step away from men and human beings defining God, we were to understand that there is something greater than you and I and every self. And compared to that greater, that greater entity, we all are nullified. Not because we have no value, but because we are not the creator. We are not the cause. We are the result of this grand designer. And let's not talk now about whether following rules, and again, I'm, I'm trying to cut away any type of potential corruption or distortion or political politization, politicization, politization of the topic. It makes total sense that the whole of everything and beyond would dictate what the part should do instead of the part dictating what the whole should do. The whole as the entirety. So if I were to enter a scene, just to give an example, you come on to, you're born in this world, you come onto the scene, and suddenly you enter, you see there are a bunch of other players. And they're going through different motions and different things they're doing. And you come in and you have your thoughts and your opinion. But you've come into a narrative that's already in play. Think of it like a film. Now you're a new character in this film. Does it make sense that this new character is going to say, you know what? Everything you've been doing is worthless. I'm here now. What I say, that's what goes. That's not the behavior of an intelligent person. Intelligent person says, let me hear what the narrative is. And you may find out that you play a very important role, an indispensable role. But there's a narrative, there's a picture going on. The whole basis of science is looking that way. That instead of looking myopically at the moment, what is going on right now, what can I do to benefit or exploit the situation, you look one second. There are rules of nature. There are unifying principles that connect diverse phenomena. There's some bigger picture. There's a scientific story. There's a po poetry. There's a narrative to life. That's the essence of understanding scientific theory, the understanding that the laws, these laws of nature, the nature of, prop of the properties of how different phenomena and different bodies function and orbit and uh, behave are part of a bigger picture would be quite, not just arrogant, it would be pure, pure idiocy for a person to say, no, there's no picture, I'm here and that's all that matters. So in essence, the acceptance of that higher force, we'll call this unifying force, a whole that's greater than you as the part, or in the analogy I gave before, that you are one musical note in a larger composition, and there's a conductor, a choreographer, whatever analogy you want to use, is the law, is, makes total sense. Because it means you are part of that, not that is part of you. 
And in that context, the self has value, but only when it recognizes that it is really nullified compared to the big picture. You ever climb up a mountain or stand in front of an awesome, beautiful piece of nature, a sunset, you sense a certain almost dissolving of being absorbed in something bigger than you are. And that does not destroy you. It actually elevates you. But someone will argue, what do you mean it elevates you? Your self is now where? It's nullified in this presence? Yes, but that itself is the beautiful experience. That you're absorbed in something that's beyond you. Something greater, and you become part of it. And that's the real case for God. Now, the word God itself can be a very dirty word for many, so that's why I always hesitate when I say it, but I've already said it. So try to erase all your preconceptions and all your previous definitions of God. Think of it simply, the acceptance and the appreciation and the awe of something bigger than you and I. And what's the alternative? That there's nothing bigger than you and I, and it all begins and ends with you. Now, for a moment, don't think of your self-interest. Which one is, seems resonates more? You make that decision. Of course, then we come into play our interests, our self-interests. And then, of course, when it comes to self-interest, you try to justify anything. Why should I listen to something, a higher cause? I have right now my need. But imagine if every part of your body said that, we wouldn't have a healthy functioning organism. If every musical note said that, you wouldn't have beautiful music. So here's the interesting twist. And this brings me to using some, I'll use some Kabbalistic and Hasidic terminology. What makes something a self? What defines the self? What makes the self valuable? If it's defined by your grab of power, power grab, by your hoarding resources, by you dominating, as so many monarchs and tyrants and dictators throughout history tried to do. You take away from others. You turn them into slaves, into serfs, to serve you. Then the greatness is definitely there at the moment, the appearance of greatness, I should say. But how long does it last, and is it real? Because you didn't do it by will. They didn't do it willingly. It was by force. You forced yourself upon others. You imposed yourself. And that is the definition that, that feeds your control. Now, for many people, that's good enough. Because at the moment, they feel all-powerful. Here's the second alternative. The alternative, the actually antithetical approach, is exact opposite. Everyone has their value. And you recognize that, that you don't have any more power than anybody else does. And just because you have an army, or you have manipulation, or through fear, have gained control, that doesn't give you control. That just means that you're right now dominating due to all these tools, I would say weapons that you have, that is frightening others, so you are in control. But rather you feel the opposite. You feel that you're one piece, or not even one piece, and something so vast, so beyond, that you feel completely humbled before it. Now one would think that's like the opposite of power. No, but here's the key. Once you come to realize that, and you realize that you were chosen to be part of this musical composition, to be part of the narrative, 
then you weren't chosen because you want power. You were chosen by the bigger picture to be part of that picture. And the picture is not complete without you. So you tell me who is the more powerful one. The only difference is the first approach seems like the grab, seems like the short, long road. Right now you're getting a lot of power, but it doesn't last. It's not sustainable. The second one, you begin with humility. You begin with absorbing. You begin with nullifying yourself, sacrificing yourself. But what do you get in return? You become a channel. You become an expression of something greater. I'll go back to the musical composition analogy. A musical note decides, I'm not, I don't want to cooperate with my colleagues here. I'm jumping off the page. I'm going off on my own journey, and I'll create my own music. And when every time they play the composition, that note comes that point, everyone feels the void. It's no longer there. But the musical note thinks it's now a uh, to reach all kinds of has all the potential. It doesn't have to be part of this this group, cult, group mentality, group think. It's off on its own. And what does it do? It tries to play music, but it realizes it can't do it itself. So it needs others. So it tries to make deals with other musical notes that made the same same type of decision. And what do you come to realize? That just because you did that. Now you have a bunch of same musical, it's not the same musical notes, but another individual musical notes, and who's dominating here? And you realize that the music isn't played unless you have that. So one option is you become the boss. I will tell all the other musical notes what to do. But you realize that their strength lies in their playing their music, not being a, a lackey and a puppet of yours. And then you come to realize, well, that's where I began. I was once part of that type of entity. And the true realization, if you allow yourself to come to it, is no, I wasn't a lackey. I, wasn't a pop, I was not myself a lackey with others. It was my liberation and transcendence that I could have the honor to be part of a bigger composition and play my music. So the so-called seek for individuality, the search for individuality actually undermines yourself, the self that you are. And the paradox is, the more you are able to absolve yourself, the more you're able to empty yourself of your sense of self and your sense of identity, and the more you feel humbled and in awe, and yes, inferior, but in a positive way, to something far, far greater, the more powerful you become. Because you're dedicated to yourself, you're only as great as you can be. But when you're dedicated to a cause beyond yourself, then you become an extension of that. And you can never do that on your own. You can only be part of a larger musical composition when you're part of it. If you choose to separate yourself, so you're right now, yes, you're not going to be in part of a group harmony, but what are you going to achieve? You'll achieve maybe some success, but never the synergy and the harmony that comes with the whole picture. And we see this everywhere. Think of letters in a, in, in a book. Words in a book made up of letters. Each letter has its unique role. Letters turn into words, words turn into sentences, into paragraphs, phrases, ideas. You say, I want my individuality. Your individuality is best served when it's part of other letters and other words and other phrases because then the story is told. Should you separate yourself and decide, I'm going off my own, yeah, it may feel good for a while that you're like really not part of anything else. Sounds like a free spirit, a bohemian free spirit on its own but you'll quickly find out that you'll need others 
to really tell the true narrative, the, the larger narrative. So you're back to that. And you'll realize as much as you can achieve, you achieve much greater when you're part of that team. And the key thing is to remember, we're not annihilating ourselves when we do that. We're nullifying ourselves in the presence of something greater. And then you become an extension of that greater. The challenge is, how do you implement that when we, our, menta- our mentality is dog eats dog? The competitive mentality that if I don't fight for myself, no one else will. And others will step on me if I don't exert myself, if I don't, um, uh, what's the word I want to use? Well, exert, just exert ourselves is the right word, but exert, if I don't demand presence, assert myself, that's the word I wanted. I don't assert myself. So fine, that's all good and fine, but there's the balance that we have to remember. The balance of knowing that the self is served best when the self is not serving itself. That the self is, serves best, is served best when it's serving something greater than itself. So then when we ask the question, the good thing about feeling inferior is the opposite, is the, is the bad thing feeling self-fulfilled, self-contained. I'm happy. I'm content. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. Is this, does it feel good for the moment? In a way, it does. Why? So you feel like you're a self-made man. But are you living up to your greatest potential? Are you accessing and actualizing all that you're capable of? You may be feeling good. Now, I would submit there are many people, especially who have grown up in environments that did not cult- cultivate and nurture and nourish them, so they fight for their turf. And how do they fight for their turf? By being fiercely independent and saying, no, this is what I want. They've been deprived so long, that's the only way they can respond. So they've gone to the other extreme. They were annihilated in a bad way. And now they're looking to regain some type of control, some type of ownership. And they begin to go to the other extreme, where it's all about me. And I deserve it because I was deprived for so long. That's not the goal. The goal is to really want to be you. You are part of something much greater than you. And that greater has given you true value. Now I know the word inferior never, never evokes positive feelings. Inferior, I'm inferior to another. I feel inferior. Inferiority complex. So yes, it's a play of words, but there is the positive side of inferiority. And that is not that you're inferior and you're second class or subjugated. Because we're not talking about inferior to another. It's feeling that you, as you are, are a small piece, is the light of something so great. And that's an uplifting feeling, not a demoralizing feeling. When the inferiority leads you to demoralization and to feeling inadequate and empty, then you rest assured it's not what we're not the healthy inferiority we're talking about healthy humility. Then you're talking about being beat up, allowing yourself to be beat up, feeling worthless, feeling damaged, and so on. But then there's something else entirely. You're seeing a broad horizon. And then looking at yourself and saying, I'm part of this. So when a seed deteriorates to grow into a tree, if it wants to remain a seed, it will never grow into that tree. It needs to suspend itself 
you need to shed one layer of skin to assume another layer of skin. And the Kabbalistic, especially the Hasidic literature, is called Bittul. I've talked about this a number of times. B-I-T-T-U-L. Pronounced Bittul. So Bittul means, can mean also elimination. It can mean annihilation. That's a negative sort. But Bittul can also be suspending yourself to be a channel of something greater than yourself. A combination of humility, modesty, and suspension of self. But not as an end in itself. It's recognizing the truth of who you are, that the self has no value unless it's part of something greater. And then the way the Hasidic masters put it, then the self becomes a true connected to the divine self, the essence of it all. But only when it recognizes that it itself doesn't have any power of its own. So it's essentially the surrender, the vulnerability, the sense of lack of self that allows you to become the true self. So it's not about eliminating you. It's about reaching who you truly are, but only when you realize, as Moses hears from God, no man can see me and live. He wanted to see God. If you see God, then you no longer will be you. No man can see me and live. You want to see me? Stop looking. Don't allow yourself to get in the way. So the deepest experiences in life are the ones we were not self-conscious about. They say being in the zone. You're just it. Think of health. What does health feel like? There's no sensation for health. Someone tells you that health feels like something they probably need a doctor. What does it feel like to breathe? Healthy breathing should not feel like anything. The healthy heart beating. If I asked you what is right now, what is your left leg doing? So until I said that, the left leg was intact. You didn't think about it. We make such a big fuss about consciousness, awareness. Are you aware? Are you not aware? Interestingly, awareness and consciousness could actually be your undoing. Because consciousness means there's a subject and an object. You're conscious of something. That means there's you and then what you're conscious of. But if you were really it, a state of being, you wouldn't be conscious of it, you would be it. You put a dry arm into wet water, well, all water is wet. If you put a dry arm into water, you say, my hand got wet. But let me ask you this. How about fish? Do fish get wet? How about water itself? Does water get wet? No, water is wetness. So the same thing we can, we can apply to knowledge. I know something. Now, but a day yesterday I didn't know something. Today I learned something new. Now I know it. But knowing it is not being it. You can know something. It's a subject and an object. You're the subject that knows this object. Then there's becoming it. State of becoming means you assimilate it so much into you. Or I would say the other way around. It assimilates you into it. So true wisdom is not I know, is that the knowledge resonates. I am now aware of some higher knowledge. It's very different than saying I know. I know means I understand. There's the I that understands something else. And then there's the understanding becomes so much one with you. You don't say I understand. It is understood. Because now you become one with the wisdom itself. They give the analogy for that. In the olden days, not everybody was literate, could not read. 
So they, they hired readers when letters, correspondence would come, with news or personal correspondence. You hired a reader that read it for you. So there was this peasant who received a letter from his family from far away. And um, it said urgent on it. He went and hired a reader who was reading to him. And this begins reading, sadly, this peasant's father had passed away. So the reader continues to read. The peasant suddenly starts crying and faints. The love of his father. So the question is asked. The one who read it, read about it before even the, the other one heard it. And he was able to read it, and he just continued reading. And the peasant who can't read, and only heard it from him, he passes out. So I think we all know the answer. It's his father. It's not his. For him, it's a story. It's a narrative. It's a subject to talk about. Or say an object. It's an event. For the, for the son, it's him. It's my father. It's my life. Extension of me. So there's hearing about information and gathering data, but then there's becoming one with that information. And that's when you dissolve into, this, in, into the knowledge or into the information to something greater than yourself. Now, there's a case to be made for objective knowledge where you don't bring the person in there, obviously. But ultimately, that you need because that keeps you honest, keeps you objective and not subjective. But ultimately, you want even that objective information to become so assimilated and integrated and internalized that you become it. And it's like one with you. That awareness has now become one with you. Like water does not get wet. And you say this about many things. For example, love. Is love a verb or a noun? Is love an action? I love you. Is that an action? Or is I love you a state of being? So some say for men it's a verb, an action. And for women it's a state of being. If you think about it, it should be a state of being. It's 24-7. Yes, there's the act of love. There's the act of embracing somebody. Acts of love that we show love through sending a gift or other forms of expression. But that is the expression of it. The core love itself is a state of being that's 24-7, even when you don't send a gift. Even when you're asleep. State of being. You become one with it. There's the expression in the future, it says. There will be no longer destruction on my holy mountain, meaning in the world. Well, it means the holy mountain plus the world. Why? Because the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Listen to the words. World filled with knowledge as the waters cover the sea. What does it mean the waters cover the sea? World filled with knowledge. What are you adding with that analogy? Because look at the sea. A sea has a seabed, has mountains and valleys and volcanoes and earthquakes. It's as complex and more complex than land as we know it. And with all kinds of systems and it's not just a flat, empty bathtub. And it has organisms and it has life forms and species. Even much more than earth does, land does. The Talmud says this, everything in land is on, on the, in the sea. It doesn't say everything in the sea is in land telling us that sea has much more. And yet, when the water covers, you look at an ocean, and we had never dived underneath, and we never took cameras down there, you'd think there's a few fish in the sea. Once in a while you see the fin of a whale. 
the tail and fin of a whale or other fish. So you know there must be something happening. But we never in our lives imagine or dream of the complex ecosystem down there. Until today, this is the mysteries of the deeps, of the depths that we still have not even conquered. Sometimes we know more what's going on millions of miles away in outer space than just a few miles under, right near us in the water that covers two-thirds of the planet. So what does the waters cover the sea mean? It means that when you see as water, the sea, meaning sea meaning the seabed and the structure and its creatures, are all dissolved and absorbed in the water. On land, you don't see that. On land, you see distinct creatures. We know science tells us, as I mentioned, that everything is connected and there's a, a very fascinating unity and synchronicity between everything. But in the water, you actually see that. So what do we tell us? The world will be filled with divine knowledge. Not just you will know things, but that knowledge will become one with existence like the waters cover the sea where the knowledge consumes us instead of us consuming it. Think of it in the terms, in, in context of modern technology. We talk about the, the, the information revolution, the age of knowledge. You can access any information anywhere, inst- instantaneously. Any place, any time, any piece of information. And it's only getting quicker and quicker and instant. So on one hand, what a gift. That was not possible. But on the other hand, look at how inundated we are. Now we have the opposite. We have information overload. Overloading our senses, overpowering us. And it's now difficult to know what is good information and what is bad information. What's real, what's fake. Because it all comes streaming at us. Just because it's out there doesn't mean it's real. And what's valuable to you? That's why today it's almost the opposite. Once upon a time... A journalist, a researcher was the one that found the scoop, found a piece of information no one else knew. Today, all information is available. Today, you need someone. The masters should be telling us what information is valuable and sift away everything else. Sift out the important kernels. But even a more important thing, this information overload is information that is, is overwhelming and controlling us. Imagine that you were able to unite with this information, what is relevant to you, and it becomes one with you. Then it's like the waters that cover the sea, so it's not just an overwhelming force, it's absorbing you. And you become one with the knowledge, and the knowledge becomes one with you. But that's only when it's not just a lot of data being streamed at you and just blowing, out, blowing away and overloading your circuits. It's an experience experience of accessing the information that's relevant to you that's important to your life you know i saw this website called useless knowledge or useless information.com great stuff but it's called useless because you start reading it you say why do i need to know this it's nice trivia but if you're able to define what's useful and you can look in the knowledge it's not just i've learned something new more data but this data has now become part of your being You've, I should better say, you've become part of its truth. That's losing yourself in order to find yourself. Losing yourself in the sea of knowledge in order to find something greater. And that is the key. Because today what you have is egos and selves. A lot of data, what happens? The data 
can become either addictive, controlling, whereas if it's not just about a self being exposed to a lot of data, it's a selflessness. You're not looking for data, you're looking for truth, and you're looking to not gain more, but to lose yourself in the true and healthy knowledge, then it's a whole different experience. Then the knowledge becomes part of your healthy state, and you become part of it. And this can be elaborated upon as well. I don't want to go off course too much. Let's go back to the theme at hand. So, let's talk in therapeutic terms. Very often people feel that since they've been abused, stepped upon, violated, hurt, and their self is fragile, the solution is to build a stronger sense of self. You see this? You know, 20 years, my needs were not taken care of. Now, I'm taking care of my needs, and I don't care about anybody else's needs. That's what many people feel is the compensation, the payback. And not like vengeance, necessarily. Just, you know, I've been so deprived. I haven't drank any healthy water for years. Now I want to drink. Now, you can, you can empathize and relate to that sentiment. But what I would like to submit, that it's not really your ultimate way to heal. It may be short term, there may be a need to stand up for yourself and you should be encouraged to do so after you've not been allowed to speak. You've been silenced. You've been invalidated. So it's important to find platforms and venues where you find validation. But the problem is both of them, whether you were given that platform and validation or now you have, or, or whether you were not given, both of them is about yourself. The real solution, the real antidote, the real remedy, the real healing comes when you realize that it's not about you being validated or invalidated. So if you're invalidated, now you'll validate yourself. It's about you were chosen to be part of something that's greater than the self. And your validation is not because I want to be validated. It's because you are fundamentally validated by the mere fact that you exist. You were placed here with an indispensable purpose. It just was stolen from you that awareness. But it can't be taken from you because it wasn't given by anyone to you. So it's coming to realize you're part of that. And then you don't need to necessarily spend your life just scrounging and hoarding and saying, now I'm going to fight for my turf because it was taken away from me. So then you become part of the problem. Because now you're, you're the one that's grabbing turf and sometimes maybe depriving others that deserve or you have the ability and the gift to give love to. Instead, you're taking care of yourself only. Whereas if you come to realize, you know something? That which was invalidating to me, that which was robbed from me, is not real. They convince me it's real, but I have a deeper value coming from a greater place. And that value does not mean I have to preclude and ignore and avoid everybody else. Just like I was once deprived, I deprive everyone else. No. Your validation comes by realizing you're this indispensable musical note that both needs everyone and they all need you. So by you going to encountering your lack of your deprivation with now self-absorption is you haven't solved the problem. You just it's just the inverted part of the same problem. But if you come to recognize the greater presence and that you were always part of it and you were just not told, you were not invited to the party, and now you do invite yourself. So it's not just fighting for your turf at the cost and at the expense of others, 
but it's coming to realize your real value. And that real value goes hand in hand with others as well. Now, of course, in a day-to-day program of implementing this, case by case, you have to determine sometimes we need time to take care of our own needs. Sometimes we have to find the time to help another. And it's not mutually exclusive. In the words of Hillel, if I'm not for myself, it will be for me. But if I'm only for myself, what am I? And they're not a contradiction. It's different times, different moments. And I go even further, they're both happening simultaneously when you're in a healthy state. Because even when you're for yourself, it's not at the expense of others. It's not at the exclusion of others. It's recognizing, I'm playing now this piece of music, but in a second moment from now, or even while I'm playing, there's others harmonizing and supporting me. And then I yield to the other, and they play, and that supports me as well. And then when I play again, it supports me. It's just different modes of the you expressing yourself. Sometimes you express yourself through expression. Sometimes you express yourself through refrain and restraint and allowing another to express. It's also part of your expression. It's like we say the white space is even more important than the black space when you design a page. You can't just make it all ink and letters. White space. So the pause, the white space is just as important to be able to read letters on the words than the letters themselves. And then it's all one part of one picture. White space. It's like silence in between phrases. Restraint, refrain in between forms of expression. That's also part of the expression. And when you realize that, you realize that all of it is part of something greater. So when you're having a good conversation with people that you respect and love, and you're very opinionated, you say something, and then someone else says something, you right away say, no, that's not right, that's not correct, you contradict. What you're doing is undermining not just the other, yourself too. Because that person may have an insight. So if you like say, I, I, you state your opinion, then you're quiet. That quiet is just as much information as when you state your opinion. You'll see people are insecure. They need to constantly talk, talk, talk because they're afraid of being wrong. Here we're not talking about it. There's no wrong. Even if you make a mistake, someone else may see something you don't see. You compliment each other. And then even silence is part of expression. And expression is part of silence. It's really an old, entirely new way to look at yourself and those around you. Because the inclination is we gravitate toward grabbing. Because if you don't fight for something, someone else will take it from you. You know, like that joke, two guys go camping at night. Middle of the night, one of them hears a a beer, a beer scrounging there for, for, so he wakes up his friend, he says, there's a beer, we got to get out of here. And his friend sees him tying his sneakers, his shoelaces. So he says to him, what do you think? You can outrun the bear? He says, no, all I have to do is outrun you. That's survival instinct. That's survival talk. That's not seeing that you're part of one big picture. It's everyone, I'm going to take care of myself. That is the inclination some people have, especially when they're threatened. But that's what we need to fight and recognize that there is a bigger picture and we're all part of that bigger picture. Obviously, when it comes to dangerous situations, you have to do what you can. Like they say, put the oxygen mask first on yourself and then on others. Because if you're not going to be strong, you won't be able to help others. But it's not because you're selfish, because that's the way that you are able to 
help others. So that, my friends, is a picture, some way of looking at life. We were all, all able to put on these lenses. Life would be very different. Think what effect it would have in harmony in our homes, between spouses, between family and children, between children, siblings, between families, between strangers, between communities, between cities, nations, empires. It's a different way of looking at life. And it's all understanding there's something greater than you are. And that makes you great. Not because you're great, but because you're part of the greater picture. I hope this is enough food for thought. This is a topic that we could talk about a lifetime for that matter. But the goal here is to share something and hopefully you can take it and develop it further. Share it with others. This is what we believe at the Meaningful Life Center the work I do, my labor of love, and my entire beautiful, great team, the Meaningful Life Center, that we are here for each other. And that makes each of us a far greater person. We're here to serve. So please take advantage of that, and we can take advantage of you. I mean that, obviously, in a positive way. We're now entering the holiday season, time of unity, time of light. Hanukkah is right around the corner. At the time of light, what does light do? Light unites. When you're in the dark, you can't see the connection between things. When you shine the light, nothing changes in the room except you now see its placement, its role. So light is clarity, and clarity brings unity. May we all have a very unifying experience, a clarifying one. And please see us as musical notes in your composition, and we see you as we see you as musical notes in in our composition, or I would say in a larger composition, all of us, each playing our role, complementing the other, and together something greater than the sum of the parts. Stay in touch. Please share, share these ideas if you find them meaningful. Give us your comments, thoughts, feedbacks, ideas for further programs. We want to hear from you because we want to know what's on your mind, what's in your heart, because that's how we all become richer. To all of us to sing with our unique voice. We would love to hear that voice. Thank you. We're here every Wednesday. It's a Wednesday program. We have other services and programs that you can easily access at MeaningfulLife.com. Please also consider, especially now as we come to the end of the year, a generous contribution. We live on your, on your support. Nonprofit organization. We do a lot of things for free. And uh, we have also recently launched some new items, so please check us out at MeaningfulLife.com. Stay in touch. Everyone have a very illuminating, blessed, and unifying week.